0: From the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Mahlon and Kilian died, so that the woman left was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab And they lifted up their voices and wept and they said to her no we will return with you to your people but naomi said turn back my daughters why will you go with me have i yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands turn back my daughters go your way for i am too old to have a husband if i should say i have hope even if i should have a husband this night and should bear sons would you therefore wait till they were grown Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon, Father Boaz, Boaz, Father Obed, Obed, Father Jesse, and Jesse, Father David. The word of the Lord. Thank you.
1: Let's pray together. We rejoice this morning. Uh, Lord, that you are gracious to us, that you work in ways that we um, don't always fully understand or appreciate. And so, even this morning, as we conclude our study of Judges and we look uh, at this uh, book of Ruth, we pray that you would draw us to wonder and joy in your plan of redemption And that it would lead us to wonder and joy in Jesus, your son, as we worship him this morning, this Christmas Eve morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are we living in a new dark age? At least some seem to think so. If you just do a Google search of that question, it will lead you to a number of various articles from places like even Washington Post and uh, Forbes, among others, that say yes, we are living in a sort of new dark age. One of those articles quotes the historian William Manchester who describes the dark ages of Europe, that period beginning with the collapse of the Roman Empire up to the Renaissance as a period of Continual warfare, corruption, lawlessness, obsession with strange myths, and an almost impenetrable mindlessness. The author goes on to comment, it's not a stretch of the imagination to see the remarkable parallels between our own scientific age and that of Europe's dark ages. We can think of examples like the constant wars playing out in the Middle East, conflicts and tension with Europe, NATO, Russia, uh, the war in Ukraine. Think about violent, lawless protests. We can think about the the loss of objective truth, that there seems to be almost an impenetrable mindlessness with so much of our discourse. This person's truth versus this person's truth, this interpretation of events versus this interpretation of events where there's almost, at times, no correlation of that we're viewing the same facts or talking about the same thing you can add to this political corruption, the growing distrust of institutions, the corruption and abuse of powers and in institutions of all kinds, including the church. Whether or not we're in a dark age, there is certainly much to grieve and lament about the way things are at the present time. And this morning, as we conclude our study of Judges, we remember that the period of Judges was a dark age in the history of Israel. This was a time where there was confusion about God, there was faithlessness and idolatry, there was wars and suffering, there was corruption and lawlessness. This was a time where people turned away from God, and and things got darker and darker in society as a result. They turned away from God, from listening to God, from following God, and this led to death and destruction and social decay. And so you come to the end of the book of Judges and you see the effects on society and you remember, you may remember if you were with us, especially this is where we started in our study of the book of Judges, a complete confusion about what it even means to know God and love him, where people think that they are loving God and doing what is good, but they are so wrong. You see awful violence, the powerful taking advantage of the weak. You see the objectification of people and the complete disregard for treating people with dignity and honor as those made in the image of God. The very last few chapters of Judges, we didn't even look at. If you were with us in Sunday School last week, Jeff mentioned you that the content is a bit much for a mixed audience like ours. If Judges was a TV show, it would certainly be TVMA, and the very last episode covering those last few chapters would probably have one of those warnings. The preceding program contains scenes of extreme violence and should not be viewed by young children. Reader discretion is advised. And one of the temptations of living in an age of darkness is despair. We saw this in Judges. When again Israel does what is evil in the sight of the Lord, when again they turn from Him and they become idolatrous, and this pattern just keeps going and they keep giving into sin, there can be despair, a loss of any real hope for change. Do you know what that's like? It's just inevitable that you're going to fail again. There's no reason for me to even think about changing my habits or my practices or any of this stuff because I am going to fail. I am going to engage in the addictive behavior again. I am going to lose my cool again. I've said a thousand times, I'm not going to do that thing. I'm not going to end up in that place. But here I am again. I've done it again. This is just who I am. Maybe I'm just a failure. Maybe changes for other people. Despair. We can think about this toward the church as well, right? I mean, maybe you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus but with the repeated failures of the church, what is the point of giving myself and my time and my resources to the church? It's so messed up. At times it feels hopelessly messed up. You can't go almost a month or two it seems without there's some new uh, uh, abuse, there's some new scandal, there's you know turning away from God in some way. I'm not sure that the effort is worth it with all the mess with, with people Dechurching and deconstructing. I don't know if I have the energy anymore. I, I think I might be done with the church. I'm just going to take care of myself, my family, my, my friends' despair toward the church. But what about the society? Let's say you're a Christian, but you really wonder what will my efforts to follow Jesus in mission to our world, to neighbors, to co-workers, to friends, to family who don't believe, what is it really going to accomplish? Because the people I know and the people in my life are far from trusting in Jesus. They, they, they're not ignorant of who Jesus is, they don't want Jesus. And the way the current culture is and the way of life its so strong, what will my efforts produce? And so I'm, I'm done. I'm done being open about being a Christian. I'm done trying to talk to people about my faith. If you ever feel like any of this, if you ever feel despair toward yourself, despair toward an institution like the church, despair toward the world, Ruth is your book. This might be my favorite book of the Bible. In this short Beautiful little part of God's work. We have such a fitting conclusion to the book of Judges because Ruth shows us how God works redemption in a dark age. And what Ruth shows us is how God works through ordinary people whose lives have been touched by God's faithful, committed love such that they show that faithful, committed love to others.
0: And what the book of Ruth shows us is how
1: seemingly small and insignificant acts of faithfulness and committed love are used by God to ripple out and bring fullness to a nation and even to the whole world. Like much of our lives, the story of Ruth is lived in small, ordinary, particular details. Of one family living in a difficult time and yet as we will see look what God does through people who know his love and embody that love in the world if you have your bulletin uh, let me invite you to take it out uh, because we are going to look at Ruth together and as we look at Ruth I want us to think about first how, how this story begins and then The faithful love of Ruth, then the faithful love of Boaz, and finally the unimaginable effects that God works through them. Notice how it begins, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. And if you've been with us, having studied judges, just a whole flood of content should just rush in and set the stage as we think about this story. Very much in step with Judges, it begins as a story with turning away from God. We read that there is a famine in the land, which I don't think is a neutral just description of, you know, like it's rainy out today. Uh, Because during this time, when God's people were in the land, a famine was a sign of a covenant curse. It was often the result of unfaithfulness. A famine for Israel during this time is like the check engine light coming on, ding, ding. There is something wrong with your relationship with God, and that is an invitation to turn to God, to repent. But what does this family do? Well, ironically, Elimelech, whose name means, my God is king, my God is king doesn't live out the meaning of his name, but participates in what you could call voluntary exile at a time when Israel's relationship and communion with God was so connected to living in God's land, my God is king turns and goes to Moab, a place that is also not spiritually neutral territory. No, this is a people who had led Israel astray to turn away from God and to participate in idolatry in the book of Numbers. And so unsurprisingly, what we have is There's this spiritual move away from God and the land that God has given. And this leads to the sons of my God as king taking foreign wives. And this turning away from God, very much like we've seen in Judges, leads to death and devastation. All the men die. And the three women are left without children without any heirs to carry on the family name. They, they're left without family and without children, which in, in that world means you have no future. You have no security. You have no one to care for you as you age. They are left with nothing. And here is where we begin to see the faithful love of Ruth. We read verse 6 that Naomi hears that God has visited his people, and so she's going to go back to Israel, to Bethlehem, where she's from, and she urges her daughters-in-law ultimately not to go with her, because in verse 11, as she puts it, there is no hope for you if you go with me. There are no marriage prospects. There are no prospects of children, which right in that time means there is no future, there is no security, there is no life. And Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, upon hearing this, verse 14, she weeps. She kisses and hugs her mother-in-law, and she leaves, which was totally rational and and just, uh, what else is she supposed to do? But Ruth won't leave. Ruth clings to Naomi, and that word cling is a significant term. It could be translated, hold fast. And it is covenantal language, the kind of bond and commitment that God's people were to have to him. Moses says in Deuteronomy 13, it is the Lord your God you must follow, keep his commands and obey him, serve him and hold fast to him. This is the language of the first marriage in Genesis 2 when Adam was to hold fast to his wife Eve. This is a deep bond of committed love. You see, somehow, Ruth has come to know the Lord. And given what we know about Naomi, I'm not sure she was the perfect witness or what on earth she told Ruth about the Lord. But somehow the truth of who the real God is and the reality of his faithful, committed love has touched Ruth's life. And it's so clear that this happened because she is embodying what God is like to Naomi. Ruth echoes the covenant language that God says to his people when God says throughout the Old Testament, I am your God and you are my people. When she says to Naomi in verse 16, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. I will not leave or forsake you. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from. Throughout this book, Ruth will be called Ruth the Moabite, and though she will be seen by others as as an outsider, this woman's identity has changed. She has come to identify with the Lord, taking refuge in Him and belonging to Him. She has known the faithful love of God, and so even when it doesn't seem like there is any rational reason or any real possible hope that she would ever have a future or a life with Naomi, she clings to her in covenant faithfulness. And this committed and faithful love animates Ruth In chapter 2 when when they're back in Bethlehem and she has to figure out how they're going to eat how they're going to have food and so she moves out into the world into places unfamiliar into places that certainly would have been dangerous animated by God's faithful love and we also see this faithful love so clearly in Boaz who we meet in chapter 2 And here's a person who's, in a lot of ways, very different from Ruth. He's an Israelite. He's a land-owning man in a patriarchal society. And yet, here's another person whose life has clearly been transformed by God's faithful and generous love. Verse 4, he speaks to his workers, acknowledging the Lord. The Lord be with you. You get this picture. You can imagine Boaz is the kind of boss who really cares about his workers, who cares about how they're doing, who wants to know what's going on in their life, who wants to know who's in his field and how that's going, who's incredibly generous with all that he has. And we see this especially in his interactions with Ruth. I mean, Boaz clearly has known personally God's welcome and generous love because this is what he shows to Ruth. Throughout the book, as I, as I just mentioned, Ruth is constantly referred to as Ruth the Moabite. In chapter 2, verse 6, uh, if you look there, Boaz's young man, when, who's in charge of the reapers, he refers to her as the Moabite from the country of Moab, which I always find funny, as if Moab... You know, Moabites come from somewhere else. But, it, but it's stressed over and over and over again in this book. This woman is an outsider. She would have been seen by everyone as an ethnic and religious outsider. And if, as we saw in Judges, during this period of time, Israel has a pretty hard time of even treating their own people as if they're made in the image of God and with dignity and respect, how likely is it that a Moabite is going to be treated like the image of God? And yet, look at what Boaz does. Verse 8, he honors her. He refers to her as, my daughter. He lets her know that she's welcome in his field. He protects her. He cares for her. By making clear, Ruth, I know you're going to get thirsty when you're working, and so, you see those jars over there? Those jars are for you. You go over there whenever you're thirsty and no one's going to bother you. That is where you go. You are welcome here. He shows her, verse 14, hospitality, inviting her to sit with him and his workers. And Ruth, who would have been trying to get just enough food to not die, eats until she can't eat anymore. And she is fully satisfied. And she has an unthinkable thing in the ancient world. Leftovers. The generosity continues. In verse 15, Ruth gets up from the meal to, to go back out into the field to glean. And as one writer puts it, Boaz tells his young men to be deliberately careless in their harvesting. You could imagine him saying to the workers, All right, can you guys go to harvest? Just keep dropping stuff for Ruth. It, it's totally cool. Just do it. Leave the good stuff for her. So they're going around, and, you know, oh, whoops, we dropped the sheave. Whoops, there's another one. Five-second rule. All right, well, I guess we'll just have to leave that. Keep going. And Ruth has all of this grain at the end of the chapter. Weeks worth of food. Ruth has been welcomed, protected, included. She has feasted. She's found generosity and abundance beyond what would have been realistic or imaginable. And let's not forget, this book started with a famine. How rational is it for Boaz to be so generous? How reckless does it make any sense to be so generous in such a dark time? What if there's another famine? I mean, sure, God has said some things about the poor, and yeah, we should probably do that, but I mean, she is a Moabite. When you think about the Judges period, I mean, this is just remarkable and so different and so weird. And as we turn to the end of Ruth, chapter 4, we see the unimaginable effects of what God works through these two people, Ruth and Boaz, who embody his faithful love in the world. Right, what ends up happening is Boaz, who is a part of this larger clan, this family of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, he takes Ruth to be his wife, and they have a child. And what this means in the context of the story and the time is that this family that had turned away from God and had experienced death and devastation, this family that had seemed to have lost everything, is now redeemed and restored and brought to fullness because now there's an heir There's someone to continue the family line. There's someone to continue to own the land. Chapter 4, verse 14, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord. Look what God has done, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And then what the women go on to say is just so remarkable. When they recognize Ruth and they say of her, Your daughter-in-law who loves you. Who is more to you than seven sons. I mean, in the ancient world, if you were having a child, you would want it to be a son for a whole bunch of reasons and and seven is the number of perfections. You can't get any better than that. What is better than seven sons? A Moabite who has been transformed by God's love. That's what's better. This alone would have been unimaginable. This family has been restored. Ruth has been honored and recognized. But that is not all. God in his faithful, generous love is up to bigger things through this relatively small story of redemption and restoration. In the last few verses of Ruth, we get a genealogy which I'm sure is your favorite part of the Bible whenever there's a genealogy. But this genealogy literally transforms the entire narrative because it shows that God was up to something bigger than merely restoring this Israelite family. Remember, Ruth is set during the Judges period, right? And the last few chapters of Judges have this refrain that keeps repeating, there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel. And yet we look at the end of Ruth, verse 17 and 22, and where does this genealogy go? To David. King David, the king that God would use to move his redemptive plan of restoration for the world, forward. The genealogy is telling us that God was not just showing faithful, committed love to Naomi and her family. God was showing faithful, committed, generous love to Israel. Israel, who like the family of Elimelech, had turned away from God again and again, but God didn't turn his back on them. In the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the time of the Judges, God was at work in a small, microscopic way, through a few people in one particular family to bring the king that Israel needed. And if you keep reading through the Old Testament, what you see is that through David, that though David was the king that God would use to move his plan forward, David, flawed and sinful as he was, pointed to a much greater king. And so you turn to the New Testament and the first book, the first chapter, the Gospel of Matthew, you have a genealogy. A genealogy that includes Boaz and Ruth and David the king. All who are a part of this story leading to Jesus the Messiah. The one who would bring in the fullness of God's redemption to this world. And so, you see here, what truly would have been unimaginable for Ruth and for Boaz, that through them, God was not just showing his faithful love to Naomi and her family, and God was not just showing his faithful love to Israel, God was showing his faithful love to the whole world. God was loving you, and me. You see, do not despair in the midst of darkness. Look at how God worked in the time of the judges. Look at how he was at work bringing his good, faithful, gracious plan of redemption and restoration in the midst of the darkness. Look at how he worked in and through the faithful and committed love of his people. Do not despair and do not give up do not give up in the struggle against sin do not give up and discount what might seem like small acts of faithfulness to love god's church to love the world what would have seemed like little pebbles of faithful love and Ruth, compared to the ocean of darkness and sorrow God used, and the ripple effects of that touch every single person in this room today. In the midst of a dark age, God was at work, and isn't that the glory and wonder of Christmas? Isn't that what we celebrate today? that through someone so small and so seemingly unimportant, a baby born to, poor, to a poor Jewish couple in an unimportant town, that through Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, God in person in our world, through this person, God would bring the fullness of his redemption into this world, to a world In darkness that had turned away from God. As the hymn puts it, a world in sin and error pining. The world languishing, unable to save ourselves, unable to fix ourselves, unable to heal ourselves, unable to do anything in sin. God was bringing a new and glorious morning. A new day was dawning through this one person, Jesus who came to taste our sorrow, who comes to take upon himself our sins, who was born that he might die for us, who was raised that through him we might know that the darkness will not last and it will not have the last word on your life. This is the glory. Of Christmas and this is what we celebrate the wonder and the glory of Jesus and as we celebrate and rejoice in him he transforms us to be people of hope who look forward with confidence with the imagination of faith that says I don't know how God's gonna use what I do but somehow he's gonna use it because he did in Ruth And he does it all over the Bible, to be people of faith who trust God, because God has shown himself over and over and over and over again to be utterly trustworthy, to be people of love who are animated by the love of God that we know in Jesus Christ, and then to carry that love into the world It is in light of this incredible goodness and grace of God that I want to invite us all to turn to a time of prayer. We'll spend a few brief moments in silent prayer and confession where we can honestly name before God those places where we have turned from him, where we have sinned. We'll spend a few moments in silent prayer before using the corporate confession that's in the bulletin. Let's spend a few minutes in silent prayer.